year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Hiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left side the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings one touching the wing of another creature on either side and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures spread back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking.
Thanks, Rachel. Well, uh, we're beginning this morning our series uh, on Ezekiel. I, I feel like calling it the series on not Leviticus. Uh, you know, just just to reassure people that uh, it's not going to turn into Leviticus halfway through. But um, I'm excited. I hope you're excited as well. I, I think Ezekiel is a, is a wonderful book. It's it's such a Again, it's a really visual book. You get a, a glimpse of that here in this first chapter. Uh, and I hope that uh, in our condensed nine-week uh, look at it that uh, we'll catch a, a glimpse uh, of God's uh, greatness and, uh, and of his mercy in the Gospel as well. I've got a bit of a, a pop quiz for you this morning. Uh, a couple of questions. These are quotes from the beginnings of books uh, and uh, so if you know what book this is from, uh, you know, call it out. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We're all going direct to heaven. We're all going direct the other way. Do you know where that's from? Now, oh, come on! It's like one of the greatest openings in literary history. Tale of Two Cities. Yes, Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. Uh, all right, this one maybe will be known by some people. It is a truth universally acknowledged. <laughs> That a single man in possession of a good fortune must be wanted of a wife. Uh, or what about this one? Mother died today, or maybe it was yesterday. No. Uh, Camus, the outsider, uh, the stranger. But uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the well, well-known books in the literary history. But, you know, there's lots of great openings to books, isn't there? There's lots of uh, uh, great books that we've read and they begin in such a way. I, I love that opening uh, in Pride and Prejudice. I think it's one of the greatest, uh, most witty beginnings to a book ever written. Uh, and that, uh, that depiction by Charles Dickens of those two cities and those two kinds of times, the best and the worst, uh, all jumbled together, all mixed together. Now, people begin books in lots of different ways and the way that a book begins often sets up everything that comes after it. Uh, it lays the groundwork for what the book is about and what it means and what we're to understand about it. And so it is with the book of Ezekiel, except that the book of Ezekiel isn't just a work of literary fiction, but it's a word of God to us, to his people, to his people in times past written down for us so that we can read it and understand it. And the book of Ezekiel is a book which begins in a very strange way. I don't know if you thought that as, as we read through it before, uh, but it's a very strange beginning. I think probably of all the books in the Bible, it begins in the most peculiar and maybe the most confronting way. It's peculiar, I think, because it's highly symbolic. Uh, it's a bit like... Uh, a Picasso painting. You know, Picasso paintings are, are abstract, they're weird, uh, but they're symbolic. They're not supposed to depict reality kind of as you see it 
uh, as it is, but they kind of are trying to get in behind the meaning of reality, trying to kind of, uh, I guess, evoke certain emotions and certain feelings about what reality is really like. There's a meaning which lies beyond the shape and beyond the objects themselves. And if heaven were open, if we, as we sat here, heaven was opened and we saw God himself in his full glory, he wouldn't look like what Ezekiel describes. But what Ezekiel describes captures for us the, the, the meaning, the weight, the awesomeness of who God is and what he's like. Ezekiel says in verse 28 that what he saw was merely the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's not just the glory of the Lord, it's not just the likeness, but it's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the God. It's, it's twice removed from what God is actually like. So what does the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord look like? Well, first, it's frightening. The appearance of the glory of the Lord is frightening. Verse 4, Ezekiel he's, uh, he's, you know, he's innocently uh, standing by the side of the Kibar River. If he was uh, in a river in Tasmania, he might be fly fishing uh, and there he is, he's just minding his business and he receives this vision of the glory of the Lord. And what does he see? <coughs> Excuse me, he sees, <coughs> he says, I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal. Or verse 24 speaks about sound like the roar of rushing waters and like the tumult of an army. Those four bizarre creatures uh, had the appearance of burning coals of fire. It's a terrifying picture, isn't it? I mean, uh, you think of the worst you know, possible things that you can imagine in nature, in creation... And there they are all bundled together in one picture. There's lightning. You know, uh, you don't seem to get really terrifying lightning storms down here in uh, Launceston, not as much as Sydney. But in Sydney, I just remember, it's in the middle of the night and it would just be like pounding lightning and it it was terrifying. And Ezekiel says that's what it's like to see the glory of God. It's like lightning striking, you know, in the field just over there. It's like the sound of rushing water. It's like out of control water hurling through, uh, you know, through this, this ravine, through this, uh, through this valley. It's like fire, burning coals. It's like an army thundering into battle. That's what Ezekiel says. It's like to see the God of heaven and earth. It's terrifying. Second, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord is exalted. In the middle of this cataclysmic storm, Ezekiel sees those four strange creatures uh, and we discover later on in, I think it's chapter 10, that they're cherubim. So, you know, forget those pictures from uh, the classical painters of uh, these little boys, kind of little babies flying around and, uh, you know, having lots of fun. You know, here's here's Ezekiel's vision of the the cherubim. They're a little bit more uh, peculiar, a little bit more frightening. And these four strange uh, creatures have these four faces. So there's, uh, there's the face of a lion, there's the face of an ox, uh, the face of an eagle and the face of a man. And each of them kind of speaks to the exaltation of these creatures. You know, the lion is the greatest, the most exalted of the, of the wild animals. The ox is the greatest of the, 
the domesticated animals. The eagle is, is the greatest uh, among the, the birds of the air uh, and, and the humans are greater still than all uh, of creation. So here are these exalted creatures. They're exalted in every conceivable way and yet these exalted creatures themselves are carrying around the throne of God. So, so look at verse 22. It says, Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. And then in verse 26, Above the expanse, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of sapphire and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. So there's these four creatures, there's an expanse, you know, like a, an icy platform you might think of it, and then exalted above that is this, this throne of sapphire. So, so the picture is these four creatures, these four exalted creatures themselves high up and above them this vast expanse and exalted higher above that is the throne of God himself. In comparison to Ezekiel and in comparison to us, God is high and lifted up. It's like standing you know, at the bottom of, uh, of Centrepoint Tower or something in Sydney or at the bottom of whatever that enormous tower is in Melbourne, you know, standing at street level and looking up and trying to see the top of the building. You know, and there seated above, seated above everything is the throne of God himself. Now what is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God like? It's exalted, it's high and lifted up, it's so far beyond us, it's so far above us. Third, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord is dynamic and powerful. Each of those four creatures had these four faces facing four directions with four wings and four wheels. There's kind of this this fourness going on and the idea seems to be that there's this the, the four points of the compass. That is, uh, these creatures are able to move with great speed in any direction. They're able to transport God in any direction that he so desires. Uh, each of the wheels uh, has a wheel inside it, these wheels intersecting wheels. The, uh, the engineers and the, kind of the, 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 kind of the, the technically minded people are sitting there going, how does, how does that work? Oh, I don't get that, wheels within wheels. And all the arty people are going, yeah, that's really powerful. I just, that really resonates. You know, that really resonates with me. Uh, you know, but, and, and for once, the arty people are right. You know, the, 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 the point, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very often. So uh, embrace it. Embrace it while it happens. But the, you know, the, the point is that there's these wheels within wheels. Again, it's a picture of mobility uh, and of movement. Uh, the, the point uh, is there in verse 19. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Uh, it's, it's probably better to read that phrase instead of the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Uh, it's probably better translated the spirit of life was in the wheels. The spirit of life was in the wheels. That is, the, the spirit of God was, was kind of enabling the mobility of these creatures, enabling them to, to take God wherever he so desired. When the wheels rose, uh, the throne of God rose. Wherever he wanted to go, that's where he went transporting the throne of God uh, everywhere and anywhere. 
Uh, I don't know if you listened uh, to the uh, the sports at all yesterday or Saturday, I think it was Friday night, wasn't it? On Friday night, Black Caviar raced again. I think he probably raced again yesterday. He won his 24th race in a row. 25, was it? There you go. See, I'm, t- I'm out of it. But the fastest horse, one of the fastest horses that's ever graced Australian racing tracks. And God is faster, more mobile. Black Caviar won't ever race on a wet track uh, because, you know, I guess they're afraid that he'll hurt himself and he'll never race again. But God can go anywhere and everywhere faster than we can possibly imagine. You see, this picture that Ezekiel is giving us is of a God who's not only high and lifted up, but a God who is anywhere and everywhere all at the same time and endued with his incredible power and dynamism. Fourth, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord is glorious. It's a bit of a tautology, but but, uh, the glory of the Lord is glorious. Flashing fire, feet like burnished uh, bronze, the wheels of the creature's Verse 16, sparkled like chrysolite. Verse 18, their rims were high and awesome and all four rims were full of eyes all around. That sounds a bit weird to us, doesn't it? Wheels filled with eyes. But it helps to know that actually all through this chapter the kind of the term eye has been used quite a bit. So in verse 4, uh, the, in our English translations it says, looked like glowing metal. It literally says, it was like an eye, like an eye of, of amber or something like that. Or verse 7, instead of gleamed like burnished bronze, literally it says sparkling like an eye of bronze. Uh, or verse 16, instead of sparkled like chrysolite, literally it says like an eye of chrysolite. So to say that this wheel is full of eyes is, is probably really just to say that this wheel is full of kind of gems, it's, it's, it's studded with these precious gems and it's gleaming and glittering. That's why when the wheels move they, they flash like lightning because the light of these gems is, is, is flashing off uh, as they move. Uh, above uh, that expanse then too, above, uh, above those creatures was that incredible expanse which sparkled like ice, it was itself awesome and above that expanse was the throne of God, which was a throne of sapphire. And finally in verse 27, God, Ezekiel actually sees God himself and what does he describe? He says, I saw uh, this, this figure who looked like a man, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance all around him. I can't even begin to imagine the glory of that scene. I mean, when was the last time you saw someone wearing, you know, kind of a diamond encrusted outfit? You know, people don't, you know, I don't move in those circles. I don't know if you move in those circles, uh, but they're not the circles that I move in. We, we, we don't live, you know, amongst the trappings of glory. Uh, you know, the closest thing, I hate to do this again, the closest thing I can think of is, you know, like a, the, a parade of the British monarchy, you know, like a, a, a coronation ceremony with all those jewels and all those crowns and all that, that kind of, those fine fabrics are, are brought out. There's all this, uh, you know, amazing scene. But that's nothing compared 
to the glory and the majesty and the honour of the God that Ezekiel saw, the God who is there. What is God like? You and I have never seen God. We've never met God face to face. What is God like? What is it like to meet God? Ezekiel tells us it's frightening because God is frightening and exalted and dynamic and powerful and glorious. Look how Ezekiel responds at the end of the chapter. When I saw it, he says, I fell face down. So there it is, there's this beginning to this book, this this great vision of the glory of God. But why is it there? Why begin with that, with that picture? I think to understand that we need to go on and read a little bit more from Ezekiel and we're just going to read uh, some of uh, chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3. So you've got your Bible still there. I'm going to start reading at, uh, at Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1. So we've seen the background, we've seen the vision. Now here's the commission, if you like, of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel writes, He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and Thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what, is before me, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate but I will make you as unyielding and as hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. 
Then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. The sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away and I wept in bitterness and in anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Abib near the Kibar River and there where they were living I sat among them for seven days overwhelmed. So in that first chapter we meet the unseen God, if you like, the God that we've never seen. But this unseen God, it turns out, is a God who speaks. He speaks to us. He speaks to us through Ezekiel. Chapter 1 finishes with those words, When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. God speaks to Ezekiel so that Ezekiel can speak to God's people on God's behalf. And what's the message? Well, verse 3, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. It was a painful message that Ezekiel had to take. Verse 9, Then I looked and I saw a hand outstretched to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. The message is so shocking for Ezekiel to receive himself. He's not even begun to speak it yet. He's just hearing it from God. The message is so shocking that when this whole experience is over, he sits there at the edge of the Kibar River weeping and in bitterness because of the task that God has given him to do. God was sending Ezekiel to God's people to warn them, to rebuke them, to call them from sin back to faith in God. So what are we to make of Ezekiel's commission? You know, What are we supposed to understand of Ezekiel's commission? I think it's tempting for us uh, to think that the most immediate application of God's words to Ezekiel is uh, that we should be like Ezekiel, that just as God had sent Ezekiel to these stubborn and obstinate people, uh, it's tempting for us to think that that's what God is doing, that God sends us to a stubborn and obstinate world with God's message for God's world. Uh, it's amazing, actually, isn't it, that of all the people in this opening few chapters of Ezekiel, of all the people that we identify with, we find it easiest to identify with Ezekiel himself, with the one specially chosen by God, with the one who received that unique vision of God, the unique commission of God. We more readily identify with Ezekiel than we identify with the people that Ezekiel was sent to speak to. Imagine if the first hearers of Ezekiel's message Uh, They heard Ezekiel speaking. Ezekiel comes along uh, and tells them about his commission from God uh, and imagine if they said, okay, the message uh, for us from God is that we should be like Ezekiel, that we should be bold in proclaiming Ezekiel's message. Imagine if that was what the people took away from what God was doing through Ezekiel. It would be a catastrophe 
They would have completely misunderstood what God was doing through Ezekiel. The message from God for them was not be like Ezekiel, but the message for them was God has spoken, you must listen, you must turn from sin. The emphasis in Ezekiel 1-3 to for us is not on us speaking, but on us listening to God. And when we see that, it, it begins to become clear why chapter 1 is there in the place that it is. Why is it there at the beginning of this whole book? Why is it there kind of under, undergirding this commission for, of Ezekiel? It's there so that we would know who is the God who's speaking to us. And more than that, who is the God that we might not be listening to? See, God comes to Ezekiel and he shows Ezekiel who he really is. And it's a terrifying picture. When God speaks, we're not just not not listening to a voice, a voice of a person or words in a book. When we don't listen to God, we're not listening to the God of heaven and earth, exalted above the highest heavens, dynamic and powerful, glorious. Frightening. If you're not listening to God, here is the God that you're not listening to. A figure like that of a man who from the waist up looked like glowing metal, from the waist down looked like fire. His appearance is like a rainbow in the midst of clouds. His brilliance incomparable. That is the God that Ezekiel says you're not listening to the God of heaven and earth. Actually, that's the Jesus that you're not listening to, is it? In Revelation chapter 1, there's a, there's a strikingly similar description. The Apostle John uh, meets Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus. He sees Jesus for who he really is. John writes, I turned to see the voice of one speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. It's a picture of Jesus. It's not a picture of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's a, it's a frightening picture. It's a terrifying picture. I love, uh, I think it's Don Carson, I don't know who says it, but uh, in their commentary on, on Revelation, they make the comment, you know, clearly something has changed in between when John met Jesus the last time, you know, at the Lord's Supper, or, you know, lying on Jesus' breast, you know, and now, you know, this is the exalted, the risen, the exalted Jesus the, the Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. And what's John's response? When I saw him, I fell at his feet though dead. Then he placed his hand, right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. John finally sees Jesus for, for who he really is, terrifying, exalted, powerful, glorious, he's terrified, rightly so, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
We find it so hard to hold those two things together, don't we? Fear and grace. C.S. Lewis, I think, holds those things together so well in his book uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, There's a moment uh, where uh, Lucy and the others are kind of hearing about Aslan for the first time and they find out that he's a lion. And Lucy uh, asks uh, one of the badgers who's telling, telling them about Aslan, Lucy says, is he safe? And the badger kind of you know, turns to Lucy and says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And it's the same with Jesus. Of course he's not safe. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be ignored. God has spoken. God has spoken through prophets. He spoke through Ezekiel. He spoke through his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to listen. The consequences of not listening are unthinkable. It's horrifying. But on the other hand, the consequences of listening and trusting in Jesus are immense and wonderful. At the beginning of his Gospel, John can write, he came, Jesus came to, his, to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. They didn't listen. Yet to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Ezekiel 1 is a, is a terrifying picture of God, of the God who is there. But the message that God sends Ezekiel to speak is also one of invitation, not only of warning, but also of grace. 33, God will say, Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God wants them to come back. He wants them to respond. He wants, he wants them to turn in repentance. That's why he's sending Ezekiel. It's a terrifying picture, but it's also a picture full of grace and mercy and kindness. God has spoken. We need to listen. So Ezekiel begins with this vision of this unseen God, of our unseen God, of a God who speaks and a God that we must listen to. But this chapter also does equip us ourselves for being God's people, speaking to God's world. In this chapter, God is preparing Ezekiel for just that task, to speak on God's behalf to God's people. But the reality is that that is a difficult task. And all through that chapter, that is this chapter, that's painfully obvious. Uh, God says to Ezekiel in, in chapter 2, verse 6, And you, son of man, don't be afraid of them or their words. Don't be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Don't be afraid of them or what they say, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house. Or in 3.7, the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. God says that, if he'd sent Ezekiel to the, foreign, to the foreign nations who didn't even speak his own language, if God had sent Ezekiel to them, they would have listened. Even though it would have been gibberish, they wouldn't have understood him, they would have listened. But Israel won't listen because they're hard-hearted. 
Chapter 3, verse 8, I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel's ministry ended up costing him a great deal. We'll see that as we go through the book. We'll see how much it ended up costing him. But the point is this. God had always said that it was going to be very difficult. God had always said that it was going to be hard. It was going to be monstrously hard because the people were hard-hearted and didn't want to listen. Now, you and I haven't received uh, a vision of God from heaven. We haven't received words of prophecy from God from heaven. We haven't uh, been directly commissioned by God uh, in the way that Ezekiel had. But we do have that responsibility to speak God's words to God's world. Uh, In John 20, Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We have that responsibility to take God's message to God's world and our being sent doesn't just include the task of going but it also includes the nature of the ministry. Just as Jesus was sent into the world into a difficult ministry, so we're sent into the world into a difficult ministry. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Or if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The greatest example of a rejected ministry Uh, of a ministry which was received, not received, I should say, by hard-hearted and obstinate people. The greatest example of that is not Ezekiel's ministry and it's not our ministry either. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ. God finally sent his son into the world to speak on his behalf and people didn't listen and they crucified him for the message that he had to speak. So what are we to do? What are we to do? The message of Ezekiel chapter 2 is pretty clear. We need to keep speaking. Whether they listen or fail to listen, it doesn't matter. And that's not just we need to keep speaking to the world, we need to keep speaking to the world, but we need to keep speaking to each other in the church as well. We're speaking to uh, a man in ministry this week and his basic message was this. They're not listening. He'd spent weeks agonising on what to present, what message to bring to the church, how to to change the church, how how to call them to repentance, how to call them back to faithfulness in the gospel. And he said to me, it doesn't feel like they're listening. And I'd just been preparing this sermon on Ezekiel chapter 2 and I said to him, whether they listen or whether they fail to listen, you need to speak God's words. And whether we're in ministry or whether we're in our workplaces or whether we're in our homes, people will not listen. But we need to keep speaking. It's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to be at work and to finally summon up the courage to share the gospel with a work colleague only to be rejected. Oh, that's garbage. That's rubbish. Or, you know, stop beating me over the head with the Bible. And it's so easy, isn't it, then to give up. To give up on sharing the word? Well, I won't do that again. It turned out so poorly the last time. I mustn't be gifted. But God says to Ezekiel, no. They're obstinate and hard-hearted and your responsibility is not... Your responsibility isn't how they respond. You can't be held responsible for that. He says that in chapter 3. Your responsibility is just to keep speaking the message. 
just keep putting it out there. You know, you might, you might uh, be trying to, to kind of speak the gospel into the life of your child and it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And it's so easy isn't it, just to give up. Not to speak it to them, not to speak it to anyone. God says, no, you need to keep speaking because that's how I make myself known. That's how the unseen God makes himself known in our world. Not by visions, not by appearing in visions to people by the sides of rivers, but by speaking words, words that he's given, words that he's revealed through the prophets, words that he's revealed through his own son, Jesus Christ. We need to keep speaking. We need to keep suffering. We need to keep speaking. But having said that, it's important not to forget the main point of these two chapters, of this whole book, really. We need to remember that before we can speak, we need to keep listening. We need to listen to God. We need to hear his word to us. We need to respond and keep responding in repentance and faith. Here is God's message through Ezekiel to us. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Amen. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much that you revealed your glory to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel to us. Lord, we want to acknowledge and confess that so often we develop that mental picture of you in heaven as kind of an old man with a beard uh, muddling around and Lord, that's not at all what you're like. Lord, you are terrifying and holy and exalted and glorious and powerful beyond what we can possibly imagine. Lord, even if we gather up all the greatness in all our world, Lord, it doesn't come close to who you are or to what you're like. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for that. Lord, we want to pray too that you would forgive us for not listening to you. Lord, we hear your words every week. We hear your call to repentance. We hear the sins that you hate. We hear the, 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 uh, the, the character and the qualities that you love and which you uh, delight in. And yet, Lord, so often we hear but we fail to listen. Lord, we fail to respond. Lord, we want to humbly bow before you and ask that you would forgive us for that. Lord, help us to hear. Help us to listen. And Lord, as we listen and as we respond, Father, we ask that you'd help us to speak. Lord, help us to take what you have in your grace and in your mercy revealed to us. Help us to take that and to speak it to those who don't know you. Or Lord, to those who do know you and, and, and still aren't listening. Lord, Protect us and preserve us and strengthen us, we pray, for the difficulty of that task. Lord, for the weariness of that task. 
for the relentlessness of that task. Oh God, help us not to give up. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. He was persecuted and crucified for speaking your message of grace and salvation in our world. Lord, help us to have the confidence and the trust in you to do the same. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.